Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome again to Encounter. Listen, I just want to highlight something we just heard in the Next Steps uh, segment about the running club. Um, we did this last year, and like 30 individuals participated. Super, super cool. I was told, listen, the big push on this is not necessarily for runners. Of course, runners are welcome, but it's for people who really don't like running and like need a cause and a reminder of why they're doing what they did. Um, last year, 30 runners raised like $50,000 uh, to provide clean clean drinking water to alleviate child mortality in the developing world. They provided clean drinking water for like 984 individuals for a lifetime. Just super, super cool. I love seeing that. I think it, it, makes, uh, it makes Jesus happy and it puts a smile uh, on God's face as he sees his people alleviate suffering in the world. Uh, this morning we're starting a brand new series called Things God didn't say. And that little word didn't, that's very important to recognize. These are things that God did not say. I'll tell you a little bit of my heart and why I'm so excited about this series is because I recognize a lot of us, we live in our own kind of echo chambers around. Like we live in, uh, we live in a world where we have our news feed and our social feed and it's all like custom curated by us and for us to like remind and reinforce the beliefs that we already hold. And so we open up the, your favorite news app or your social feed and, and whatever beliefs that you have, those things are repeated to you and reinforced. And we recognize all of us echo chambers exist, but we don't often think about like our relationship with God and some of the echo chambers that we might actually be stuck in that are really holding us back to to allowing us to fully and finally give our lives over to Jesus in a new and powerful way. And so this series is about exposing some of those echo chambers and, and like really seeing the life that Jesus has for us on the other side. For example, one big one is the, is the truth of like uh, things God didn't say. God never said uh, that he'll never give you more than you can handle. We share that with each other a lot, especially in hard times. And it's like, don't worry, don't worry. God will never give you more than you can handle. I have a whole book, actually 66 smaller books, of times when God laid on his people way more than they could handle. In fact, the whole like, point of our faith is a recognition that there is many things, the most important things, that we can't do on our own. And so God did for us what we couldn't do on our own. And so he made a way for us. God never said that he wouldn't give you more than you can handle. Good Friday at Encounter, we're going we're gonna to recognize and, uh, and experience the time when God laid way more on his son than he couldn't handle, and it cost him his life. But this echo chamber kind of goes around, and we start to believe things about God that God doesn't even believe about himself. And so throughout this series, we're taking a look at some of the echo chambers that we're stuck in and just things God did not say. Um, he didn't say things like, your life is going to be easy next week. He never said that life was going to be fair. That's the week after that on Easter. Today, God never said, God never promised that you were going to be happy all the time. God never said, I just want my children to be happy. That's a tough message to hear, especially as like a lot of your friends like went away to exotic locations on spring break. You showed up to church in person and now you're like, wait a second, now I'm just being told about how God doesn't want me to be happy? <laughs> Why did I come here this morning? Uh, listen, we're going to go down into this valley, into this like hole. Um, and it is true 
that, that the promise of God for you isn't to, make you a, isn't to make you a happy life, an easy life, or a fair life. It's better than that. It's better than all of that. So we're going to go down into this valley, and we're going to come out of it. Topic for this morning, God never said, things God didn't say, I just want you to be happy. We recognize that. We come in here, and we probably don't have like, like a specific theology of like, oh yeah, no, I believe in a God who's really a vending machine in the sky, like a cosmic Coke machine, and I put my money in, and I push the button, and then something like kicks out at the bottom, right? Many of us, we don't like automatically go there, but there are some beliefs that we hold that are, that are kind of there. There's a part of our heart that just like drifts towards there if we're not totally careful about it. And so we just have to like pause and remind ourselves that Jesus never said, if you want to be my disciple, all you have to do is affirm yourself, avoid the cross, and follow your heart's desire. He never said that. To to expose the, the theology of happiness, I think the first thing that we have to do is to name it specifically. And so there's like three core tenets of the theology of happiness that God did not say. Remember, like don't write these down as notes of like to emulate. Oh, good point, Dirk. No, no, these are things God didn't say. But the theology of happiness in three points goes a little bit like this. Whatever makes me happy must be right. Whatever makes me unhappy must be wrong. We know that this isn't necessarily true. Even the theologian Cheryl Crow once uh, wrote, if it makes you happy, then it can't be that bad. If it makes you happy, then why the heck are you so sad? Even like Cheryl Crow recognizes, like this, this happiness thing, it, it, it doesn't take long to break down. It breaks down in a hurry. Second point, that discomfort, theology of happiness says, discomfort, delay, risk, suffering, inconveniences and obstacles, can't possibly be God's will. If it's hard, it must not be from God. God doesn't want me to struggle. He wants me to be happy. But again, like think about some of the most positive things in your life. Uh, Key work uh, achievements, uh, milestones, maybe a key relationship in your life. Is it easy all the time? Because like I look back at my life and some of the most valuable relationships that I have, the most valuable like achievements that I have, they were not easy all the time. And how much of my life would just be missing if, if the going got tough and I just got going, if I gave up on it, because this can't possibly be God's will. Core tenet number three of the theology of happiness is that without knowing it, I begin to worship the false gods of comfort, money, pleasure, and things. Emphasis on without, without knowing it. You didn't come in here, I didn't come in here imagining a vending machine in the sky that we worship and sing to. But there's like a little part of me, if I'm honest. When I do a good thing, or when I resist a bad thing, there's a part of me that like wants to get some bonus points for that. Wants to get some chips to spend, right? Like, there's a part of me that when I, you know, pray, when I read the Bible like I should, when I, you know, help a little old lady across the street, like, whatever the thing is, there's a part of me that's like, okay. I mean, someday I'm going to cash that chip in. And I'm not going to, like, press a physical button, but, like, God, I'm going to pull a lever. (laughs) And I'm going to ask for something. And I'm going to ask for the job. I'm going to ask for the raise. I'm going to ask for the opportunity. I'm going to ask for the relationship. 
And God, I'm going to push the button and like something's going to come out. And I recognize God, you're holy, I'm not, and you're wiser in perspective and I'm not, but like, I'm going to push the button, God, and I'm kind of hoping and I'm kind of expecting something to pop out. I don't believe in a vending machine, but I kind of, I kind of believe in a vending machine, God. And without articulating it all the way, and just the, the creep like one step at a time, we've sort of fashioned for ourselves a certain kind of God, a God who exists to serve us. And we just got to like say it. And we just kind of kind of remind ourselves that, that God does not exist to serve us. We exist to serve him, that he's in charge. And it's actually better that way. Because when we get frustrated making these deposits, putting the change in, doing our good things, resisting the bad things, and we push the button and nothing comes out at the bottom, we're tempted to treat God like we treat any broken vending machine. And we just walk away. I tried that. And it wasn't for me. You know, I gave religion a shot. And it's just not for me. This, this God thing, this Jesus thing, it just, it didn't work for me. It didn't, it didn't make me in a more financially secure place. It didn't bring uh, key relationships into my life like I thought that would. It, it didn't make me happy. So I'm just going to walk away. And I just want to let you know that as you're walking away, first of all, first thing, good for you. And I want to actually applaud you in that because what you're walking away from is a God of your own creation. And I think the God of your imagination who exists to serve you and then can't possibly make you happy, I think a God like that is worth walking away from. But the second thing is that the God that you're walking away from is not the God of this book. is not the God of the Bible is not the God that has revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ a couple thousand years ago. If you want to get to know the God as he reveals himself, this series is for you. Today is for you. It might not bring you happiness, but I think if we pay attention to the story that Jesus tells, there's something far better, far more transformative on the other side. Uh, let's go there in uh, John chapter 8. John was a, a friend of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, lived with Jesus like for three years. He slept feet away from Jesus. He knew Jesus. And John, after Jesus' death and resurrection, wrote down his story and wanted to share it with the world. And this one is one of the most powerful stories, I think, that John wrote. In John chapter 8, verse 2, we're kicking it off. Is that at, at dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts in a crowded area like this where all the people were gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought this woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on in a story like this. Jesus is sitting down. He's doing his, uh, he's doing his Bible study. He's doing his, his small group or not-so-small group kind of thing. He's got some people, and he's, he's doing his teaching, and they're interested in, in what he has to say. And this group of people, this uh, religious leaders, uh, Pharisees, they're called, grab this woman caught in adultery. We don't have time to get into all the ins and outs of this thing, but like, I've got some questions. There's probably a couple of them, right? I mean, she's there with at least one other person. Like, where's that guy, you know? Why do they just bring her in? This time is not about getting the Pharisees like off the hook. This is just bad. 
like flat out, like what they're doing. But you just kind of, we just have to wonder. There was another person involved here, and we don't find out anything about him. The second thing is, think about the life of the Pharisees for just a moment. That hoping to trap Jesus in this no-win situation, they have to find a woman caught in adultery. Like, what kind of life do they live where they're, like, able to catch somebody in the act? Like, how many windows do they have to peek into or, like, doors that they have to, like, open up until they, like, find the situation? What kind of creeps are these guys in general, right? We're not trying to get them off the hook. No. Far from it. We just have to name a couple of these things because what we see is this woman at her lowest point. I mean, she's caught. He gets away. She's brought out, paraded out in a temple. Uh, They bring her probably hastily, probably barely dressed, and they, they bring her into church, into the temple courts. They just maximize pain, infliction, put on her, shame on her, ratchet it all the way up. Probably the lowest point in her entire life. And I think they, the worst part about this entire thing is that she is a pawn and she is a tool in their scheme. And it's like the name of God gets put on it because they're like the, the religious leaders. It's sickening. You know, Jesus is going to do something with the story, but we just, have to, we just have to recommend that even at the hands of church leaders, religious leaders, Bad things sometimes happen. It's not okay. Jesus is not okay with it. We continue on in the story. Verse 8, she's brought before the group. And they say to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commands us to stone such women, to throw rocks at them until they, until they die. What do you say, Jesus? And they were using this question as a, as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Like I said, she was just a, a pawn. She was a, a tool in this sickening scheme. What they're essentially doing is trying to put Jesus in this no-win situation, right? Where Jesus is like the love and grace guy. You know, he's talking about forgiveness and compassion and grace and love over and over and over again. And so what they do is they're like, listen, well, there's a law in Moses. There's like this religious law that says this is what we should do to people like this. And so we find somebody that's caught in the act. So Jesus, which side are you on here? Are you on the side of grace? Or are you on the side of truth? What are you going to do? Because if you choose to like go with the law of Moses thing and have her killed, then you're going to like lose all of your like love and grace and compassion kind of followers. And if you side on the side of grace, well, Jesus, don't you care about truth? Don't you care about the law? You can kind of understand how this is like, a no-win situation for Jesus. In addition to all of that, a little historical fun fact, about 30 years before Jesus was born, on top of the temple was built a military barracks because there were so many riots that would break out during these religious festivals that the Roman overlords in the area decided, well, let's just stay nice and close to the epicenter of where these things tend to break out all the time. And so if Jesus answers in some kind of way that gets everybody riled up, Well, the Roman soldiers are like feet away and they can be here at a moment's notice. They're ready for this. You can understand again why this is a no-win situation for Jesus. What is he going to say? Continuing on in verse 6, he doesn't say anything, but Jesus, underline this, bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. 
Now, before we make a comment on what he wrote, I've never noticed before how he wrote. Uh, I, I've never picked this one up before. We've preached on this one in the past. Many of you, you've probably heard this in the past. Maybe like me, you missed out on the fact, first thing that he does is he stoops down low. Before we get into anything about what he says, we have to recognize how he said it. Because we have this question about how God responds to grace and truth. Like, how is God going to show forgiveness at the very same time that he shows justice? These things are at odds with each other. They can't be held together at the same time. But John said, in John chapter 1, he starts off, I lived with Jesus like for three years. And John goes, I lived with him so long, I recognize that he's both full of grace and full of truth. And, and somehow for Jesus, these things weren't at odds. And I think how we come to the place where grace and truth are not at odds with each other is to recognize is to, is to recognize that the first thing that God does, he stoops down low. He identifies with the woman. Comes alongside with the woman. Those of you who know somebody who is trapped or caught in something, what they need from you, even before truth, I would say even before a word of grace, what they need from you is to stoop down low and to identify with them in the dark hole that they find themselves in. First thing that Jesus does, he stoops down low. Second thing that Jesus does, he begins writing with his finger. Now, we don't know exactly what he wrote, but there's kind of this, uh, this historic legend that has been created as, uh, as the story has gotten told and retold and retold. It didn't make it into the Bible, but there's like outside stories of people who are there that say like, yeah, yeah, the thing that Jesus wrote in the dirt, uh, he began to write out uh, a single word summary of each one of the 10 spiritual laws, the 10 commandments. And by each one of the Ten Commandments, he just wrote down the name of somebody standing there because God, in his, in his omniscient wisdom, the Son of God, knowing all things, he knew all things. And so he could stoop down low next to the woman now, identify with her, and look up at each person and see them. And they just write their name in the dirt. And if you could just imagine this scene playing out, that Jesus is like one by one, like writing up the list of each one of their sins. And he's like, he looks up at uh, one of the Pharisees, Phil, the Pharisee, because that makes sense. If you're a Pharisee, your name is probably Phil. And he's like, Phil, the Pharisee. And he's just, he's like writing out browser history, right? And, he, and he's like, yeah, when, when was the last time you searched the Tuesday browser, right? And he just lists out some websites that he maybe visited or something, right? He's going through the people gathered around there, like one by one by one, just listing up. He doesn't say a word. Verse 7, uh, when they kept on questioning him, okay, enough about me, Jesus, like, wh what are you going to do about her? <laughs> when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. It's genius because he's not denying truth. At the same time, he's also exhibiting grace. Okay, 
justice is justice, the law is the law. Let's, uh, let's do this thing, but let's do it in an orderly way. The person whose name I'm not about to write down, you get to throw the brick first. What's interesting to me is that he says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first. Without sin, that the word that Jesus uses there, without sin, means not only the person who hasn't sinned, but there's an, an emphasis on the desire or the motive that's within that word. So he's like, those of you who, who didn't sin and also those of you who didn't want to sin. This just got real for me. Because I'll be honest with you guys, not in the specifics because it's church, but there's time that like I didn't sin, but I wanted to sin, right? Like I look at God and I'm like, okay, God, I didn't do the thing. God, I wanted to do the thing though. Traffic gets me. We'll be no more specific than that. But sometimes things happen, and I, there's an urge inside of me, and I'm like, I didn't, I didn't do it, God. Man, the window was open, and I wanted to do it, but I just have to know that I didn't do it, God. And Jesus is like, okay, Phil, that doesn't that isn't cut it either, <laughs> right? Those of you who didn't sin, but also you didn't even want to sin, like that doesn't even live inside of you. I'm not throwing, I'm not going to throw that brick. Verse 8, he again stoops down, writes on the ground. I think he finishes the list. I think everybody's name gets put on the board. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the oldest ones first. Because in that culture, when you were like stunned, when you didn't know what to do or like who to follow, the default in the Middle Eastern culture is just to follow the oldest person in the room. And so Phil leaves with his longest browser history until only Jesus was left. Awesome to note, too, that Jesus was the only one left. Like, John, like, points that out. He said, okay, we're all going to, all of us without sin, we're going to leave. And, and who does that leave? Jesus. Like, that's all. He's the only one who without sin. No one is righteous except for him. So G John says, okay, until only Jesus was left. Oh, yeah, the woman was also there. <laughs> the woman was standing there, too. Verse 10. Jesus straightened up, and he asked her, woman, not a rhetorical question, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. You can see it's grace. It's also truth. It's truth. And it's also grace. I don't condemn you, grace. But you know how tomorrow has to be different than today. And I think she leaves. But like, I don't think she walks out. I think she floats out because something happened for her she experienced something that i don't think she has ever experienced before she experienced freedom freedom from shame freedom from guilt freedom from the the darkness and shroud that follows her everywhere that she goes she didn't walk out of that place she floated out of that place because she experienced what it's like not to worry about what's heading around who's around that very next corner she has freedom somebody told me a very long time ago a line that has just resonated and stuck with me so badly you are only as free as the secrets you keep and for the first time in her life, there's not a secret to keep. She's free. 
as everything that she has done is just owned in front of everybody, and she didn't receive condemnation, guilt, or even a death sentence, literally, what she experienced was forgiveness and grace. Not without truth, but along with it. Now, I'd like us, I'd like us to go there. I'd like us to identify with that woman for a moment. But before we do, we have to recognize, um, we have to like break down the anatomy of, of why we need grace, of why we need forgiveness, why we need repentance in the name of Jesus. We have to break down the anatomy of sin. And so I'd like to give you, like, an albeit pretty complex understanding or, or definition of like what sin is. So this is going to be a little bit heady, but it's kind of the reason why we sin. And I think it's going to be helpful for us um, as you, you know, resist temptation and think about it more. So a little heady, but, but try to remember why we do sin is because sin is really fun. That's actually it. That's all I've got. That's why we sin. It's fun, right? Like, like, it makes us feel good. Sometimes sin helps us to avoid uncomfortable situations that we want to avoid. So we lie, you know, to get around it. There's all kinds of... In fact, if you're, like, tempted with sin and you don't find that sin fun or, or at least some kind of enticing, like, you're probably doing sin wrong. I'll have some pointers for you afterwards if you would like. But we, even in church, like we have to just admit, there's something alluring and enticing about sin. That it's, that it's kind of fun. And once we recognize that sin has kind of this enticement behind it, that sin has kind of this fun behind it, we can start to break down like when that fun ends. And it usually doesn't take like real long. But sometimes we have to remind ourselves like, no, 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 the fun is going to end and then it's going to hurt. So it's helpful for us in this conversation as we go forward to think about happiness, that sin promises happiness at the cost of joy, right? There's this short-term return. And if we're not honest about that, I think that we'll be caught off guard the next time that we're facing temptation because we have to recognize, oh yeah, no, no, this is going to be fun. This is going to feel good right now. This is going to help me avoid a complicated situation right now. But there is a cost to pay, I will have to pay a future cost of my joy a little bit later on. It's kind of a dated reference right now, but it stuck with me so much that I hope that it'll stick with you as well. Uh, older movie, 2009, Jeff Bridges stars in this uh, movie, uh, Crazy Heart. He's kind of a singer-songwriter, used to be super famous, packed out arenas, uh, kind of a down-on-your-luck story when, when we pick up with him in the movie. He's, uh, he's playing at CD bars. He's living in just terrible hotel rooms, like, you know, one at a time at a time, a day at a time. Just not thriving, just, uh, just subsiding. And he has his hope and he has his dream of, like, getting on top of the world. Once again, his breakout, breakout hit. A problem, though, of why he descended into this valley, this particular one, uh, is because battling these demons, battling this... Um, a, a substance abuse, substance addiction, uh, drugs and alcohol, you know, just rain, just take a hold of his life. At one point in a movie, they cause him, he causes himself with an alcohol to smash into a tree, this narrow, terrible car accident, and he, he just watches like his whole life, you know, what little he has left just blows up in front of him. You know, he's losing the love of his life, the hope of his life, the dream of his life, all of it is just nearly gone. 
And we're reminded about this song that he wrote, that he sings. And I just want to read you some of the lyrics. You can Google it for the melody afterwards. (laughs) He sings, I was going where I shouldn't go, seeing who I shouldn't see, doing what I shouldn't do, being who I shouldn't be. It's funny how fallen feels like flying for a little while. And he repeats it. It's funny how fallen feels like flying for a little while. Sometimes when I'm faced with a temptation of short-term happiness in the face of sin, that line comes to me. It's funny how falling feels just a little like flying until you hit the ground. There's a difference there. As my southern friends say that sin has a gotcha. God doesn't want it to get you. The short-term happiness that it brings comes at the cost of a profound eternal joy on the other side of it. And we break it down with her to identify along, along with her, along with the woman. I don't, I don't know who she was. I would love to unpack this story from another angle from his side. But we don't get his side. We just find her, and we don't know who they are. We just imagine that she probably didn't wake up and out of bed that morning and decide, I'm going to blow the whole thing up. You know? Just my life, the life of somebody else. I'd love to be dragged in, in church, barely dressed, my embarrassment and shame. We just imagine for her sake that she probably went into work, and it was another bad day with her husband, and she was unhappy, and she was unhappy, and they named that. And they didn't know what to do about that. But they went in and feeling like they were taken, taken for granted. And then she goes in, and, and he, at the office, he, he notices her, you know, compliments her work. Man, it's been a while since she was complimented like that. In fact, personal stuff too, she got her hair cut and colored. He noticed that too. She makes an innocent post on Instagram. He comments, he likes it, like every time. Pretty soon, she doesn't loathe the long nights at the office, you know, slaving away, finishing all the project. She welcomes it. She gets to be with him. They both start complaining about the bad marriages that they're in and I wish it was different. I wish it was better. I was so young when I got married, and I wish I would have married somebody like you. And he brushes her hand. Is that an accident? Is that on purpose? You know the story. It's exhilarating. She talks to a friend. You know, what should I do? I feel like my happiness and my holiness are at odds with each other. What should I do? And her friend gives her the advice of a lifetime. Doesn't God just want you to be happy? It's funny how falling feels like flying for a little while. See, the truth is that you can choose to jump but you can't choose what breaks when you hit the ground. 
or who breaks when you hit the ground. You know, we think so much that our happiness and our holiness are just, they're mutually exclusive. You, you can't have both of them. And I think part of us, when we're faced in that situation or whatever temptation that, that you're faced in, when, when you're put into that situation, like we're, we're, we're facing both of these things and we're like, God, why do I have to choose, you know? And this is why we got to hang out in the middle and we don't want to like commit to one or the other because we're like, oh man, if, like if I, if I choose holiness, if I choose this Jesus life again and again, I'm going to miss out on so much happiness. God, I just want to be happy. And I don't, you know, if I, like the picture that we get, like if I choose Jesus every time and if I pick my holiness, like the only thing I can listen to on the radio is WCSG, family friendly and commercial free, right? I'm going to have to get a t-shirt and tuck it into my braided belt with, you know, grass-stained New Balance shoes and send my eight kids to homeschool. Like, come on. Like, I don't, I don't want to be that guy. You know, and I just want us to, like, stay, take a step back for just, for just a moment and just, like, clarify things God didn't say. There's things that, that God did say, too. One of the things that God did say is, like, Jesus, uh, those of you, even though you're evil, he's talking to the Pharisees, I think, right? Those of you who are evil, don't you know how to give good gifts to your children? Well, yeah. Okay, bad people know how to give good gifts to their kids, right? Yeah. Don't you think your heavenly father knows how to give a good gift to you? Don't you think that your heavenly father knows how to bring you some happiness? It's not like God doesn't want you to to not be happy. He wants you to be holy and miserable all the time. No, 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 that's not God. God wants you to be happy. It's just not the most important thing to him. Said another way, what... Uh, said another way, your happiness is important to God. It's just not most important to God. I've got kids. I know the things that bring them happiness, and it brings happiness so much joy to my heart. Like they're in the backseat on road trips, and when I hear them laugh and giggle, especially when the alternative is fighting and like poking each other in the backseat, right? When I hear them laugh, there's so much joy that it brings me. Like, especially when they have headphones on and, like, watching a movie and it's the same thing together and something funny happens, presumably, and at the same time, both of them just burst out in laughter. I mean, it makes me laugh, and I didn't even see the thing that was funny. I love when my kids laugh. But at the same time, I also know what it was like when they were little babies, and I put them in the five-point harness, the chains that go, like, all around them, and they're, like, squirming and, like, trying to break free. And I'm like, kid, six months ago, you were in the womb, okay? Like, now you're complaining about confinement? I digress. And they're protesting, you know, like, let me out of here. How could you, Dad? How could you? Is like, the look on their face, screaming, crying. It's not that I don't want them to be happy. Come on, like, you guys know this. It's not that I don't want them. It's just in that moment, it's not the most important thing to me. I want them to thrive, not just not want them to be happy. Uh, Max, Max Lucado shares this story. I think it, it says a lot of this. It puts a lot of this in pretty, pretty good perspective. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase it for our context a little bit. But he shares this story about uh, three friends walking along on, a, on the shore of a beach somewhere and and they, and they find this fish, and this fish is on the beach, and it's like flopping around, like doing one of these things. And the friends correctly observe, the fish doesn't look very happy. <laughs> so each one of the friends decides to do something about the unhappy fish. The first friend uh, gets in real close to the fish, you know, and you don't look happy, fish. 
it puts a little fiver underneath the, the fish, right? Little Abraham Lincoln, fish, you are now the most extravagantly wealthy fish that has ever lived. Fish, you know how many fish flakes that five spot could buy? You could get one of those little glittery castles that I know that fish love so much. And you know how the fish responds? <laughs> it's not happy. Money didn't make him happy. So the second friend comes along and he's like, okay, well, I know what to do. It's not money. Fish don't need money, obviously. He gets him a little, a little chair with some little fish-sized sunglasses and puts them on the fish. That's what's going to make him. He wants to be comfortable. Fish is flopping all over the place. Third friend goes, no, no, no. He comes up to the fish and he's like, I got a little fish-sized Corona bottle, complete with a lime, just stuck right in the top. There you go, fish. You know, you got a chair, you got sunglasses, you got money to burn, and you, and you got a cold drink in your fan. You know, you're happy. A fish isn't happy, he's still flopping around. What does the fish want? Water, right? The fish just wants somebody to pick him up and to throw him back into the lake. Because the fish wasn't meant for the beach. Some of us, the places where we're looking for our happiness, we think that better possessions, peaceful circumstances, thrilling experiences, the right relationships, and a perfect appearance will finally bring us happiness. You weren't meant for that particular beach. And you know of times when people achieved these things to an extent or another, and it didn't bring lasting happiness. We call that joy. Because what you need is somebody to pick you up, maybe even against your will, and to throw you back in the lake of God's provision and God's love, God's grace, and yes, God's truth. That's what we need. C.S. Lewis said, we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's what sin does. It reminds us how far too easily we are to please. Listen, you're going to go into that place of temptation for whatever it is. Go back to the prison that once held you there. Maybe it was overspending, overeating, overdrinking, overconsumption of medication, like, like whatever the, the prison of your own creation is. Like we're tempted to go back there again and again. And I just want to remind you that that comes at a cost of your own joy. You weren't made for that particular beach. You were made for the ocean of God's grace and God's truth. So much better there. In the name of Jesus, let's go. I invite you to stand up. Let's pray together. Let's pray to that God together today. Jesus, our Savior, Lord, we recognize that we get caught in prisons of our own creation, this temptation that we've given into time in, time again. It's not, Lord, it's not that you don't want us to be happy, Lord. You just have something so much more in store for us. It's a cheap trade, our short-term happiness for an eternal and infinite joy later. Spirit, give us your wisdom. Give us your courage. Help us to follow through on those convictions that we have where you are leading us. 
Help us to break out of our echo chambers this morning and find you as you really, really are. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Hey, church. It's our sincere prayer that this message was able to help you find new life in Christ. And if you did find it helpful, would you consider donating to help drive this ministry forward? And don't forget, there's no substitute for doing life together. So find a worship experience, join a small group or a serving team today. You can do all this at EncounterChurch.org.